So let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the truth of who you are. Thank you for your word and how your word reveals to us the nature of who you are and how you function and operate in this world and in our lives. And I pray, God, that as we now unpack a little bit uh, of this idea of your sovereignty, the fact that you are in control overall and how meaningful and powerful that is in our lives, I pray, God, that we might cause some of us here today to fall more in love with you, to, to fall more in love with you than the things in our lives, than, than our jobs, than our next vacation or our 401k or all the other things that tend to vie for our attention. God, may we place you first in our lives and fall in love with you over and over again today. God, thank you for the truth of who you are. May we do justice to it now, and I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when you think about it, folks, a lot has happened in our world in the last 10 years that has caused some people, even some Christians, to wonder if God is really in control. I think that naturally happens sometimes, like 9-11. We're going to celebrate that next year. Not celebrate. We're going to honor the 10 years of 9-11 coming up here in 2011, and we're going to do that on 9-11 as a church next year. And uh, you know that when that day happened, uh, there were a lot of Christians that wondered about the sovereignty of God. I mean, how can God really be in control with terrorism happening on our own soil? Or when tsunamis kill thousands of people like in Indonesia in 2004, or when hurricanes hit the coastland of the southern United States like with Katrina in 2005, or when earthquakes hit places like Haiti as happened this year, or more close to home, how about when close friends or family members get cancer? or die suddenly? Or how about when you lose your job or your life savings in a volatile economy like ours? Or how about when you watch your kids struggle senselessly with addictions and rebellions that that spiral them into chaos? I mean, there's lots of things that happen in a fallen world that at times makes the Christian wonder if God is really in control, if he is really sovereign. And yet the starting place that the Bible gives us is the fact that God is sovereign, that he is in 100% control of everything that we see and do not see. And the Bible even says that for those who end up believing this deeply and embracing it fully in their lives, they will be the more mature, rich, and victorious Christians. Or to put negatively, and yet with great challenge, I find that it's those who dabble lightly and superficially around the issue of God's sovereignty that seem to struggle the most with it. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, People who kind of flit around the edges of who God might really be, kind of having one foot in and one foot out that tend to take pot shots at the fact, well, how could God be in so control of everything with all the bad things that happen in this world? They're the ones that tend to struggle the most with it. And yet for those of us who delve deeply into an understanding of God's sovereignty, those are the ones who end up embracing it most fully in their lives. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I want to help us look at this idea of God's sovereignty as we make our way into Christmas, because we're going to be looking next week at who God is in the fact that he is now with us in Jesus Christ. But before that, let's take a look at God's sovereignty and see where that gets us in our understanding of him and in our daily lives, Monday through Saturday, as we relate to him and follow him. And if you're an outline person, pull out your outline right now. And there are three things that I want to walk you guys through as we kind of put ourselves into the deep end of understanding God's sovereignty. The three things I want to do is I want to define it, and then I want to explain it, and then I want to apply it. Not rocket science, but this is tough stuff. I want to define God's sovereignty so that you and I forever put to rest what we mean by the fact that God is in 100% control of this world and our lives. And then I want us to explain it. I don't want us to shy away from it. I want us to look it full in the face and understand 
what the Bible means by the fact that God is sovereign, and then we're going to apply it in our lives. What does this mean for us as we go about our walk with Him? All right, so let's begin by all getting on the same page, and let's define the sovereignty of God. Look up here on the screen. Here's a good starting place. The sovereignty of God is the natural and necessary outflow of His core attributes. That's how I define it. Some of you are going, whoa, that's not what I was expecting. Hang in here. You'll see what we mean in a second here. The sovereignty of God, I believe, is best understood when you see it as the natural and necessary outflow of all of his core attributes. In other words, what we're saying here is that the sovereignty of God is not really an attribute or a character trait of God like all the other things that the Bible declares about him. Things like his goodness and his wisdom and his holiness and things like that. Those are all attributes of God. No, the sovereignty of God is actually an outflow or a declared result of his most core attributes. It's a necessary and logical outpouring of who he really is. And so look up here on the screen. You'll start to see what I mean. The sovereignty of God basically goes like this. When you admit the fact that God is all-knowing, as the Bible says, and then combine it with the fact that he is all-powerful, as the Bible says, and then add to the fact that he is all-good, as the Bible says, you are left with no other conclusion than he is Lord of all. It's just by nature who God is. There's no other way to explain him when you add up his core attributes. All-knowing, all-powerful, all-good. By the very nature of it then, he is in full control of everything that happens. So now you're ready to look at 1 Chronicles 29, verse 11. Now you're going to understand what it means when it says this. Look up here on the screen. It says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted, here it is, as head above all. Isn't that cool? Add it up there. When you take greatness and power and glory and victory and majesty and all being God's, the writer here says that he is head above all. That's why I say the sovereignty of God is simply the natural and necessary outflow of him being all wise, all good, all knowing, all powerful. I love how one author says it in one of his books. He says sovereignty is all about being God. That God, once you understand him, as the Bible says he is, it can be no other than sovereign and complete control of all that there is. It's core to his absolute nature. You know, years ago when I was studying this idea of the sovereignty of God, I spent some real time with this. I thought, you know, but we use that word, the English word sovereign a lot. Not as much today anymore, but obviously it comes out of the old English times where a king would be described as sovereign or something like that. And I thought, I wonder what the English definition of sovereign is. Like, what would the Webster's Dictionary definition of sovereign be? And so I looked it up online at Merriam-Webster's online dictionary, and here is how it describes God's sovereignty. It says that it means, or here's how it describes the word sovereignty. It says it means supreme excellence, supreme power, freedom from external control. That's interesting. Supreme excellence, supreme power, or freedom from external control. And, and I want to ask you a question. Who do you know that's like that? Who, who do you know in your life that that definition would describe? Is there any human being that you would dare describe that to? I, I thought this week, Bill Gates, richest man in the world? No. 
He's not free from external control. He's not supreme excellence. President Obama, arguably the most powerful man in America? No, he's not free from external control. He's not even free from the control of Congress right now. And so the reality is, is that there's not one person, that was not a dig, by the way, no emails. There's not one person in this world today that you and I could think of that fits this definition of sovereign, except God. God would fit this definition. God, when we understand him, as the Bible declares him to be, fits the definition of supreme excellence, supreme power, totally free from all external control or influence. I love how James McDonald, a popular radio Bible teacher, says it in his book, Gripped by the Greatness of God. Look up here on the screen. This is a great way of saying it. He says, sovereignty means God is in control of all. He's over things that we see and things we don't see. Stuff we understand and stuff that if we even glimpsed it for a second would blow us away. Sovereignty means it's all his. Nothing can stop what he purposes from happening. Not people, events, or time. Get it? What God plans, he delivers. What God wants, he gets. His way and his timing on time every time. That applies to what you're going through today as well as what has happened throughout all of history. Don't miss this, folks. God is, God's sovereignty is simply the fact that he has total control and care over all that there is. And by definition, it's simply a natural and necessary outflow of his most core attributes. This has been the accepted and embraced definition of a sovereignty throughout all of Judeo-Christian history for thousands of years now. Now, if you're tracking with me so far this morning, let's bring this all the way home and understand as fully as we can what the Bible really means then by this mind-boggling aspect of God. I call this sovereignty explained, a statement that will help make things real clear to you about what we mean by the sovereignty of God, but also open up now a whole other can of worms. So here's the statement, and that is that the sovereignty of God is universal, absolute, and unchanging. That's the best way to explain it. That once you define the sovereignty of God by the fact that he's in complete control, then we need to to say that the Bible says, because I'll show you this, it does, that it is universal, absolute, and unchanging. And so first notice that the sovereignty of God is universal, simply meaning that there is no realm or scope that his sovereignty does not touch or extend to. Daniel 4, verse 35, the book we just got done studying here at our church, says it this way, and this couldn't be more clear. It says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Whoa. I I like that phrase. Among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, like that's covering everything, so everywhere and every anywhere, God is sovereign. And then notice that the sovereignty of God is absolute, meaning that there is never, think about that, guys, never a situation or circumstance that becomes an exception to God's sovereignty or absolute control. And this is what the psalmist is getting at when he says in Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Or Psalm 135, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in all the seas and all the deeps. Whatever he pleases, he does. It is absolute. And then as if all of this were not enough, folks, to put the final nail in the coffin of anything like chance or surprise happening within God's creation, notice that God's sovereignty is unchanging. 
Meaning that it doesn't fluctuate like the stock market or have bad days like your earthly father used to have. But God's sovereignty is always constant, always functioning, and will always be so. Because as we've seen, it's rooted in who God is. I think the best example of the fact that God does not change his mind, that his sovereignty is unchanging, is how Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 and 11 describe our salvation in Christ to us, your individual salvation. This is so cool. Look up here on the screen how it describes our salvation. See if you can pick up on this unchanging nature of God's sovereignty. It says, even as he chose us in him, here it is, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So this is for another sermon. But it says that if you're a Christian here today, he chose you before the foundation of the world, predestined you according to his purpose to be here today and to even be saved and in his will. And when I read that, I think to myself, it doesn't sound like God changes his mind all that often, right? I mean, the fact that he chose you before the foundation of everything being made simply simply suggests to us that his sovereignty is absolutely unchanging. If you're not convinced up to this point, because I know this brings up a lot of difficult issues that we'll wrestle with here in a minute here, but if you're not convinced, look at Isaiah chapter 45, verses 7 through 8. This is what theologians call the Magna Carta of God's sovereignty. It's like two verses that just say it all when it comes to telling us what the Bible says about the fact that God is sovereign. God is speaking here, Isaiah 45, verses 7 through 8. He says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. That just about sums it up, doesn't it, guys? The one forming light and creating darkness, creating causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord. So whether it's good times or bad, easy times or hard, smooth times or rough, God declares that he is ultimately the one in charge of it all, that he's in ultimate control. That's his sovereignty. And as I said to you earlier, it is both smart and humble people who eventually understand and accept and even embrace this. In fact, the opposite is also true. As we're going to see here in a few minutes, guys, if you diss this idea of God, if you say, well, I just can't understand it, and so it just can't really be, you will end up a shallow Christian who relies more on your strength and your goodness and who you are to make life work than on the unshakable sovereignty and goodness of God. There's a great story from a couple hundred years ago how Napoleon was leading his armies across much of Europe having victory after victory, and at one point, asked, somebody asked him if God was on the side of France. In other words, how could you be having all these victories without God being the one behind it all? And in his utter arrogance, Napoleon said, and I quote, God is on the side that has the heaviest artillery. Shortly after this, Napoleon uh, went into the famous Battle of Waterloo, where he lost both the war and his entire world as the empire collapsed on his head. Years later, while he was on exile on the island of St. Helena, he was reported to have quoted the words of St. Thomas Akempis in which he said, and I quote, man proposes, but God disposes. Think about that. Napoleon went on a journey that many, many people go on. And that's going from your arrogance, thinking that all of the success and all of the victories that you have are due to what you have done, 
to then realizing maybe toward the end of your life or hopefully sooner that man proposes, but God is the one who disposes. That God is the one who is ultimately in control. That his unstoppable, unmovable, relentless hand is leaving his imprint on all that happens. It's his sovereignty, folks. His lordship. His watchful care and control. It always has been, and it always is, and it's who God is. Now, I'm a realist, and at this point in our look at God's sovereignty, I know that, they, that thinking people have a couple of questions uh, when you finally understand God this way. In other words, there's a couple of questions that are almost demanded at this point if we're going to fully kind of understand well, how does this sovereign thing really work in our everyday lives. So let's deal with two of the more difficult questions that people have at this point in understanding God's sovereignty as it plays in our daily lives. And the first question is simply this. Does this mean that I have no choice in this world? Does this mean that I have no choice in this world? In other words, if God is in such ultimate and unstoppable control and care of this world, so much so that, as Jesus said, the very hairs of your head are numbered, that not a sparrow falls to the ground outside of his will, so much so that as the prophet quoted there, that God causes well-being and calamity, that it's all within his control, then do my choices really matter? Or am I just some puppet on a string doing the predetermined will of a divine dictator? And to answer this, we must, again, one, must once again go to the Bible, God's Word, and look at what it says to you and I about this idea of choice. And so look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. It says this, it says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Interesting. And it's different choices that God has put before us. He says there, I want you to choose life, insinuating that we can. Then look at Joshua 24, verse 15. It says, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So once again, choose this day. Then you get to the New Testament and you find Jesus saying things like this, whoever will come and drink, whoever will come and choose me. And you start to see, folks, that over and over again in the Bible, there's this cause or this call for human beings to choose between lots of things. In fact, you read this book closely, and the Bible calls you and I to choose between life and death, faith and doubt, love and hate, obedience and rebellion. In other words, we're called to choose every day amidst various choices, and God calls us to choose the things that obviously He is about. And as theologians have wrestled with this, this idea that on the one hand, God is unequivocally sovereign and we dare not ever water that down. But then on the other side of the equation, the Bible calls us to choose. They've asked themselves, is this choice really real or is it just illusionary? And almost every theologian worth his or her weight in gold lands on the fact that this choice is real, that it's not illusionary, that it's a key part of who we are as human beings made in the image of God. And so in the midst of God's declared and absolute sovereignty, we're also told that we have a clear responsibility to choose and that we have choice and that this choice matters and that it is real and it is significant. Now, some of you are saying right now, but how can this be? I mean, this is double talk, Jamie. How can you say on the one hand that God is unequivocally sovereign, that nothing happens outside of his will and control, but at the same time say that we as human beings have real choice and are responsible for our choices. That doesn't make any sense. 
And my answer is this. And I thought about it long and hard over the years. And I simply answer, well, I'll grant you, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And yet this is exactly what the Bible is saying about who God is and who we are. And listen, we do great peril to our Christian worldview and our own souls if we don't embrace, believe, and live out both. It's true. And any great theologian, and I'm talking even the most Calvinistic ones, if that means anything to some of you, agree with what I'm talking about here today. That as we look at God, we need to affirm His sovereignty completely, but also realize that choice is in play, and somehow the twain meet. You know, the best illustration I can give you is the illustration of maybe looking at a mountain. I don't know if you guys like mountains or not, but I love to hike, love to go up to places like Jackson Hole and look at the mountains and try to climb a few of them and things like that. And if you're looking at a vast mountain like the one in the picture behind me there, and, uh, and, you're, and you're trying to, to see all the dimensions of the mountain, but it's a cloudy day, what's eventually going to happen is that you're going to understand certain dimensions of the mountain, but you're not going to see how all the pieces fit. You're only going to see, maybe as the Bible says, in part. And, and that's what theologians do when they try to describe the Godhead with what the Bible has given us. It's like looking at the vast mountain of who God is, but we're finite and small, just sitting at the base of that mountain. And if we look at the mountain, we can see certain aspects of how the Bible describes God. We say, boy, that's true. Then as you circle the mountain on that cloudy day, you see another aspect of who God is. And you say, well, that's also true. But you don't necessarily see the full big picture because we're finite. And as the Bible says, now we see through a glass darkly. Then, meaning in eternity, we will see face to face. And so the reality is, is at some point in trying to describe and define God, you got to admit that you're finite and that he's infinite. You've got to admit what the Bible itself calls mystery. And the fact that there's going to be two things that are more that are true about God and we don't always see how they come together, but they do. I love how Deuteronomy 29 verse 29 says it. Just listen to what it says. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever. So there's things that God says about himself that you're not going to get this side of heaven. But then there's other things I've revealed. And embrace those things and live those things. And this is what the famous Reformed scholar John Murray calls an inscrutable mystery in which we cannot rationalize it, we cannot comprehend it. What we can do, I love how he says this. Look up here on the screen. He says we can bow in humble and intelligent ignorance. I, I, that's where I'm left at. And I'm a pretty smart guy. And yet as I've been looking at this stuff for 30 years of being a Christian, 20 years of being a pastor with an earned master's degree behind me and then rubbing shoulders with lots of PhD level people on this level. And by the way, John Murray was a PhD guy. I sit there and go, I think he's right. At the end of the day, I bow in humble and intelligent ignorance when it comes to understanding how sovereignty and choice play in our daily world. But I know they do. Listen now, Dr. Wayne Grudem, our own Dr. Wayne Grudem, who's written a very popular systematic theology, says it in his book. This is great. He says, God causes all things that happen, but he does so in such a way that somehow upholds our ability to make willing and responsible choices, choices that have real and eternal results and for which we are held accountable. He says exactly how God combines his providential control with our willing and significant choices, Scripture does not explain to us. 
But rather than deny one aspect or the other, simply because we cannot explain how both can be true, we should accept both in an attempt to be faithful to the teaching of all Scripture. And I think he's right. I think we do great injustice to our soul by trying to take too much from God and it all diminish his sovereignty. But at the same time, we do great injustice to our soul if you and I don't live every day like we have choice and use our choices to better other people and to follow God. You must live both. That's how we marry the two. We bow in humble and intelligent ignorance. Now, believe it or not, that was the easier of the two questions that we have to ask and answer in when it comes to God's sovereignty. It's true. The second question is a lot harder than even that one. And you might have already guessed the second question. It's simply this. How can a loving and sovereign God then allow suffering and pain in this world? Right? I mean, that's the real issue. I mean, for those spiritual writers that water down the sovereignty of God, there's a book written years ago uh, that watered down the sovereignty of God that basically said God is good and God is wise, but he's not all-powerful. That's why he can't control a lot of the evil in this world, but that does no justice to God. But for those of us who admit that God is all good, all-powerful, and all-wise, and therefore all-sovereign, the question before us, well, then how can he allow suffering and evil to go on in this world? If he's so powerful and in control, then why doesn't he just stop all of the pain? I mean, if nothing happens outside of his preview, then how can his love and care allow so much hurt? And though, once again, folks, I do not have all the answers, let alone a completely satisfactory answer that our souls long for this side of heaven. But when it comes to describing the ominous mountain of who God is, here's what we do know from his revelation, and this has to be enough for us. And that is that though God is up to lots of things in this world, one of the biggest things that he's up to in this fallen world of ours is to use difficult and trying circumstances to cause us to be more like Christ. That's the answer he gives us. In other words, he, he, he takes the difficult and fallen things of this world. Why he allows them, we don't know completely. But what we do know is that the Bible affirms over and over again that he takes those difficult things in your life and that as a follower of him through Jesus Christ, he has a purpose. And that purpose is to create you more like Christ. And he even uses the difficult times in our lives to do this. I love how one author said it years ago that I was reading. He said, God's love is not a pampering love. It's a perfecting love. And it's true. That when I tell you from the pulpit here that God loves you, please don't ever mistake that as a pampering love. Because that's not realistic. It's a perfecting love in which God allows difficult things to happen in your life for a purpose, and that is that as you follow him and trust him and persevere in those difficult times, he is saying, I'm going to make you more like Christ into the person that I want you to be. That he is shaping us and molding us through all the ups and downs, through all the good times and bad, to be more loving, more faithful, more deep, more rich in faith, more focused on him and others. And the only problem with this answer is that there are times in which we have no clue what that ultimate purpose really is of why God allowed pain in our lives, and yet we're asked to follow and trust him anyways. In other words, I deal with lots of people throughout the week that are going through difficult times. Just this week, I was dealing with one of our elders who lost his wife at the age of 49 two weeks ago due to a brain tumor. They were on a two-year trip around the world, six months into it, and Lara got a brain tumor. How do you explain that within the sovereignty of God? How do you explain what God is up to in that? 
As I sat there with my friend Jim at a restaurant, we were trying to unpack that. I said to him, Jim, I I don't know if you're ever going to understand why God allowed that to happen. Maybe you will. Maybe in 10 years you'll look back and you'll see fully, clearly why God allowed that to happen. I said, "But, but now we don't know. Maybe we never will. But here's what we do know. And that's that God is forming our elder friend Jim into the image of Jesus Christ. He loves him. He's at work in his life in and through everything. And that he has an ultimate purpose for his life. In fact, you know what the most cool thing is about my friend Jim, one of our elders here? Is that his theme verse throughout all of this has been Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 11. Just a powerful, powerful verse when it comes to God's sovereignty. Jeremiah 29 verse 11 says this. It says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and give you a hope. Can you imagine clinging to that during your most difficult time in life? That's what Christians are made of. Corey Ten Boom was a woman, a Christian, who endured hardships and humiliations at the hands of the Nazis like most of us will never experience in our lives. In fact, Corey Ten Boom, when she went to a Nazi concentration camp, saw her parents taken away from her and she'd never see him again. She saw her sister Betsy die in her arms as she died from starvation and abuse in the Nazi concentration camp. And yet she herself survived. And she survived to tell the world of what went on during that time. And even more importantly, she survived to tell the world how to trust God in the midst of terrible, terrible times and circumstances. And one of the most powerful things Corey ever said later on in her life when she was reflecting back on all the difficult times had to do with God's sovereignty. Look up her on the screen. She said this. She said, the higher the view we have of his sovereignty, that our times are in his hands, the greater will be the possibility to live in his victory. Let that sink in a moment, folks. This is a woman who experienced more pain, more atrocities, then most likely, and I don't mean to make you feel guilty here, but more likely than any of us will ever experience in our lives. Again, we got it pretty good here in America, even in a down economy. This is not Nazi Europe back in the 1940s. This is not concentration camps. She went through all of that. And in the midst of all of that, she comes out of it and makes a statement that the higher the view we have of his sovereignty, that our times and our lives are in his hands, even through all the ups and downs, the greater possibility you and I have to live in victory. Why? How could that be? And the answer is simple. And that's that once you start to understand the sovereignty of God and can get beyond the fact that there's things you can't understand when it comes to our will and our choice when it comes to it, and that it seems like an ominous and difficult thing to understand, once you get beyond all of that, you realize that the reason, that don't miss this, that the Bible says God is sovereign so that you and I will rest our lives within his care. That's what Corey learned. That the sovereignty of God is not just this big ominous mountain that she can't understand. No, it's her friend. It's a key truth that she needed in the most difficult time in her life to understand that God is still good and that he's still in control and that he's still worthy of her full trust and attention and devotion. In other words, the sovereignty of God, when you see it like this, folks, when you embrace it, becomes an incredible source of comfort and joy as we realize that our lives are in his hands and that there's no better place for our lives to ultimately be. We realize at the end of the day that we cannot fully comprehend his sovereignty or even make sense of it completely in light of a fallen world. 
And yet what we can do is respond to it with awe-filled worship and humble obedience and what Brendan Manning calls ruthless trust and learn to see this amazing aspect of God for what it is, an incredible opportunity to know and follow our Maker and our Redeemer. In short, the sovereignty of God, once fully embraced, makes you realize that you're not in control, but He is. But what a better place for your life to be than in His control. It's kind of a funny story. Years ago, when I was really unpacking this stuff in seminary, I was very confused as I first started to look at the sovereignty of God. In fact, quite frankly, I was offended. And for those of you who these phrases will mean anything for, I became an Arminian when I was in seminary. I know it's hard to believe, Tim. Don't fire me yet. I became an Arminian. And, and I became somebody that basically said, you know, that I, I think God is sovereign. But he's sovereign in the sense that he looks ahead at what choices that we're going to make. And then he kind of puts a stamp on it and says, well, Jamie made that choice. And so I'll honor it and then let life go on and be. But, but that doesn't really fit the scriptural evidence very well. And so I was waffling between this idea of trying to downplay the sovereignty of God and upplay my choice but then also being offended by the fact that the Bible is seemingly saying that God is in so much control that though my choices fit in, it can't really explain how. That just didn't seem to gel with me. And so I was really wrestling with this, if you can understand this at all. And one day I'm walking across the campus at seminary, and I just had this, this pained look on my face. And, and the, uh, the dean of the students was coming at me. And he could see my, my pained look, and he said, what's going on, Rasmussen? And I told him the dilemma I was having. And he just sort of smiled, and he put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, let me make this simple for you. He said, at the end of the day, Jamie, either you are ultimately in control of your life or God is. Those are the two choices you have. And he said, and I don't know about you, but I'd like to think that God is ultimately in control of your life. And so why don't you just accept that? And he walked away. (laughs) Folks, this guy had an earned PhD. I thought that's what he's getting paid to say. And I thought that makes all the sense in the world. That's it. I said, that's it. my pride is wounded. That's why I'm mad at this, is I want to be in ultimate control, God, and I want to call the shots, and I want to be able to look back and say, look what I did. Even as a Christian, even as a pastor, that's what I was wrestling with. John Piper says our greatest goal should be give glory to him. Our greatest goal should be to be so in love with God and his personhood that we embrace his sovereignty and want to give all credit and glory to him. And I turned a corner 25 years ago in my life in embracing his sovereignty. And I'm telling you folks, through all the ups and downs, it has never let me down. He has never let me down when it comes to understanding him. So as we wrap up, let me just share with you in the two minutes that we have remaining. Yes, I'm watching the clock too. In the two minutes that we have remaining, three things that you can do with sovereignty applied. How you can apply this in your week today, or in your, in your lives today. And, and here's the first thing, and that's that you need to affirm that you're going to trust him through everything. You say, I will trust him through everything. That's what his sovereignty means. In the early church, again, they had it rougher than we'll ever have. And at one point in the book of Hebrews, the writer said this to them. He said, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their very souls. So even in the most difficult times, we we trust him through everything. And so what this means for you and me today is, Whether our teen is hurting and struggling, whether we've lost our job, whether we're in financial hardship, whether our marriage has gone south, whether you collide with personal moral failure and all the ramifications of that, whether your emotions are messed up, whether you're bothered that America is not what it used to be or not, and in one sense it doesn't matter. The response of the Christian is the same. We're rooted and grounded in his sovereignty and we trust him for everything in our lives. And then the second response we have, and this even has some more teeth. Now listen to this, is that you say, I will obey him when tempted. 
You know, one of the biggest problems of Christians today, especially living in our, our very visual society, and you all know what I mean, is the power of temptation today, especially men. Can we admit that? The power of temptation. And yet one of the things that the sovereignty of God means for you is that you can fully affirm that I will obey him whenever I'm tempted. Why? Well, look at what 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says. It says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. I love that passage. It tells us that God's sovereignty is in play even in the midst of your temptation. This is what I taught you all three years ago when I first came here when we talked out of Romans chapter 6 and I gave you that famous phrase, I'm dead to that. Remember that when I was talking about Cheez-Its? You all remember the Cheez-Its. You don't remember the verse. But the verse out of Romans 6 and the idea of the Cheez-Its when I said I'm dead to Cheez-Its. And I could say that, why? Because God is sovereign. Because he's placed his Holy Spirit in me and I can live like a dead man. And I can live like a man who's dead to my sin. Temptation no longer has to win the day in my life. You now need to pray that I'm dead to Fritos, but I am dead to Cheez-Its. <laughs> so you obey him when tempted. And then thirdly, some of you are really running with that one. And then thirdly, you affirm that I will follow him when tried. I will follow him when tried. Or put another way, I keep on moving with God when I am most tired and I'm most tried. And some of you are thinking, well, what else could you do? Well, you could do what a lot of Christians do. You could stop, you could pout, you could step out of the ring, cop an attitude, and quit. And yet that's not what we do. And you know, quite frankly, I've done that in my life. There have been times over the last 30 years where I've stopped, I've pout, I've gotten out of the ring, I've copped an attitude with God, and I've just shut down on him. And yet, you know what I am when that happens? I, 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 don't, I don't think I'm unsaved at that point because you can't lose your salvation. No, what I am at that point is a distant from God, pathetic, miserable Christian. And who wants to live like that? Haven't we been there all too often? I, I don't want to do that. But the only way you're going to avoid that is to stay in the ring with his sovereignty and say, because he is sovereign, I will follow him when most tried. It's what Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. It will make, it's what makes us followers of Christ. So as you go into the Christmas season, here's what I want you to do. As we focus on who Jesus is starting next week with the idea of God with us, I don't want you to ever forget the fact that he is sovereign, that there is nothing that could happen to you this week, there's nothing that could happen to you this month, nothing that happened to you for the rest of your life, as hard as it might be, in which God is not in control. And that as you trust him, as you place your life under his care, as the psalmist says, there might be weeping in the night, but joy will come in the morning. It's true, and it's a promise you've given us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that your word comes along. And for those of us who love you and want to know more about you, it certainly fills our boots. And Lord, you give us truths that are so magnanimous that we can't even get our finite minds around them. And Lord, I thank you that even Paul the Apostle at one point called this the mystery of God. The things that are, at the end of the day, too complex for us to even understand. But Lord, we're going to try. And at the end of the day, we're going to bow in humble and intelligent ignorance when it comes to worshiping and trusting you. God, I thank you that you are who your word declares us you to be. That, God, we can fully trust in these things about you and apply them in our lives. Help us to do that this week. Lord, I especially pray for anybody that might be in a, just a real hurting time in their life right now. I know Christmas can bring that up. And Lord, I pray that this Christmas season you might draw especially close to them as we focus on your sovereignty and then your presence with us in Christ, that that might become experientially real for them this Christmas season. 
Surprise them with joy that way, I pray. I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.